Welcome back, Richard. It is good to see you. We had a week off, good but morning. it's good to see you this morning. Right. Um, yeah, taking a week off to just just completely uh, upsets this apple cart of mine. You know, you just you just get all disoriented and everything. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, it, you start falling behind on things that you didn't even anticipate falling behind on, and uh, it, then you spend the next two or three weeks trying to catch up. So. Yeah, and this week this was hurricane week. You know, it's like snow days up north. We have hurricane days in the south, and so we had a day off because school is just starting, and we're into week two or three of school, and all of a sudden we have to take time off for the hurricane, and and then we have a, a, a national holiday on Monday. So it's sort of um, um, yeah. a confusing, confusing couple of weeks here. Yeah. And, um, so well, it's good to get back and sort of get back on a regular schedule. Now, everybody's school's in session. Um, traffic patterns are clarifying themselves in the morning and the afternoon. So, uh, but it is good to be back. Yeah, definitely. And and with all those things that you mentioned, whether it's snow days or hurricane days or, or whatever, it just, you know, it always makes me think of, of stress, which makes me think of mental health and uh, mental health issues and stuff. And that is really the topic of today that you know, we, we came across a Time Magazine article um, from just last Time month, magazine. right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and it's so. a, we call it Time Magazine, but it's not Time Magazine. It's just time.com. It's uh, their, their website. It's not. It's even. actually a website. You know, they, yeah. I mean, you think of the, us geezer, you know, we talk about Time Magazine. Um, is, there isn't a time. Is there a time? Is there a, a paper copy? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um Anyway, it's all digital. But anyway, we stumbled on this article, <laughs> grabbed our attention because it says uh, that America, instead of America, has reached peak therapy. Why is our mental health getting worse? So that struck us because it's something we think about. We think a lot about that. Absolutely. And and the 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 author, I'm not even going to attempt her last name, Jamie That's the Charm. Ducharme. As close as I can get is Ducharme. Yeah, but she begins with some some pretty sober, sobering statistics, right? Um, she she noted that about um, you know, of course, we know that more and more Americans are seeking mental health care. Um, in just a moment, we're going to kind of talk about the the, the pros and cons of that, the good and bad of that. But um, with this increase in in people receiving mental health care, what we also are seeing is that. There are a lot of people on medication, about one in eight individuals are, are taking an antidepressant, which, of course, is leading to medication shortages. And um, my goodness, you know, we can talk we're going to talk um, maybe in the future on some podcasts about, you know, issues with some of that and, and what's happening with so many people taking some of these medications. Um, but one in eight are taking antidepressants, one in five are seeking some type of mental health care. So, right. so a lot of people engaged in the mental health um, care system. And, you know, again, like I said, there's some good and some bad to that. Right. Um, and we all know about the medication shortage, which we assume is due to maybe more people are taking medications than who need it. Uh, we don't know. But but many, many people, I mean, if you think of 20 to 30% of people taking medication, that's pretty, that, that's quite an increase. But also between 2019 and 2022, there's been a 40% increase in mental health services. 
The problem with that number is that we're that number is based on insurance claims. Right. So all the people who don't have insurance aren't included in that 40 percent. So right. it's probably much higher than that. Absolutely. Probably more like 50, 60 percent increase mental health services. And yet, while more people are accessing services, the U.S. mental health in general is getting worse. Right. Um, yesterday, the uh, Surgeon General of the United States was was interviewed and he was talking about uh, the effects of social media. He was talking about the effects of social media, but in particular, in general, he was talking about the increased mental health challenges facing um, teenagers, uh, young people and teenagers, the rise in mental health problems um, in young in younger uh, children and, and adolescents. And so we we hear about all these data about how mental health seems to be getting worse. Suicide rates have increased 30% in the last 20 years. Um, 30, 30, 30, more than 30% of adults are reporting some type of, uh, of uh, depression or anxiety. And you say, well, 30%. Yeah, but that's a threefold increase mm. just in the last three or four years. Right. Um, and the other thing is, and what we're going to talk about in a minute, is that only about one in three, about 30% of people receiving mental health services believe that they're getting quality health care, like their yeah. quality mental health care. And um, in 2000, again, about 20, 23 years ago, that number was 43%. So the number of people who feel that they're getting care is also declining. And that was what most alarmed us as providers. We said, wait a minute, what are we doing wrong? Right. And that's what we want to talk about. Absolutely. And we've, we've talked in, in the past on previous podcasts about some of the factors that we believe are contributing to some of this um, rise in prevalence uh, of mental health concerns, right. mental health, um, you know, diagnoses and treatment, you know, and some of those, some of those reasons are, are positive. So, right. you know, there, there is, um, wonderfully so, there, there's a, a decrease um, in the stigma associated with mental health treatment. And, and so more people are receiving mental health treatment because they see it as less stigmatizing than maybe they did 20 or so years ago. Um, but also the, the, we'll just call it the celebrity effect. You know, the more people in media, um, celebrities, movie stars, um, you know, musicians and things like that, athletes, that come out and talk about their own mental health uh, it kind of opens the doors for other people to come out and talk about mental health. So those are some positive reasons why we probably see some of this increase, but there's also certainly there's also negative reasons. You know, the, we still can't uh, overemphasize the influence of the pandemic, um, the, the, the just political and social climate that we're living in right now, the economic climate that we're living in right now, it is uh, it, it is burdensome, and it is weighing a lot of people down and bringing them to a point where where they're they're struggling with their mental health because of the pressures and the stress and and just all of these issues that are outside of their control, but are seen to influence their lives in a very direct and uh, influential way. That's right. Living in the United States, and you, you you tend to forget this, but we work very hard. Americans work really hard compared to other countries, mm -hmm. except perhaps Japan and China. 
um, Americans really work hard. Our jobs are very important to us. We don't take long vacations. Uh, we don't, we struggle. People in this country struggle balancing work life and family life. Um, and there is financial insecurity here. Even if you are, even if you're wealthy or privileged, you still have to work very hard to maintain that lifestyle. I mean, professional people, doctors, lawyers, uh, professors, these people are working very, very hard to maintain that lifestyle. Um, and blue collar workers even more so because they don't have, there's, there's not that security that you feel in many European countries or many Asian countries. And so there is insecurity here. It's also driven by social media. We know the effects of social media. We know the effects of div divisive and destructive politics during an election year. So all these things are weighing on us. And they're they're the negative factors that are driving the rise in uh, in people seeking mental health care. Right. And so it leads to the question that it led this author to the question. And, and she says, um, it isn't that supply was never very, the supply of mental health services was very good to begin with leaning on therapies and medications that only skim the surface of a vast ocean of need. That, that's her quote, is that there's something about the therapies and medications we're using that aren't meeting the challenges that the people are bringing to us. And, and that's what struck us most about this article, is that she's saying, yeah, there's all these other problems, but maybe there's something about the therapies and medications that we're not looking at or we're not looking at carefully enough. Right. I think one of the one of the challenging things that we experience, you know, in working with patients is and, and many people who are listening to this podcast may may be able to relate is that, you know, people start medications or they start a treatment and the medications, either they they initially work, but then after a period of time, they right. stop working um, or that you know, they're just on the medications for an extended period of time and they, they never find any relief. They, are, they change from medication to medication. Um, you know, they go see different providers and they get different diagnoses. You know, people search online right. to go to Dr. Google and get different diagnoses. And so, you know, right. all of that sort of stems from the issue that in, in the mental health field, un unlike, you know, cardiology and, and dermatology and lots of other, um, uh, health fields, there, there are no biological markers. There are no objective tests or, or blood tests or lab tests that can be administered that will confirm or identify a mental health condition. You know, you, you can, you can do, you can test someone's blood sugar to see if they uh, are, have diabetes, or you can do um, an right. EG to see if a person has, ep has epilepsy or is having seizures or something. You can do those tests with other health-related conditions, but when it comes to mental health, when it comes to depression or anxiety or um, bipolar or schizophrenia or ADHD or any of these things, there aren't really mm -hmm. any tests that can be administered that says, yep, that's what it is. Um, you, you, right. you got this score on this test, so that means that you have this. There's that's just right. Other that's right. With physical health, you can identify the problem, you can measure it, and you can measure your treatment. You know, mm -hmm. if if you, you apply this treatment and the blood glucose level goes down, then you can measure that and you know it's effective. Right. In mental health, psychiatry and mental health, you don't have those biological markers. And so you 
you you can't measure anything specific to identify the problem and you can't measure anything to know whether your treatment is effective or not what you rely on are people reporting to you and what people report is what do we hear often oh i tried that i've tried medication it doesn't work i tried medication it made it worse i've been to therapy didn't help we hear that all the time we don't keep data on how <clears throat> ineffective we are but we hear that all, it, it's common to hear that i've been to therapy i've tried medication it doesn't work right and i think they're right and the problem is is that in our field we are left with making a diagnosis based solely or mainly on sim on what symptoms the person tells us about. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you've had this same conversation with, with, with patients and it's something that we seem to talk about all the time. You know, people come in and, you know, let's say a parent brings a, a child in because they think the child has ADHD. Well, certainly mm -hmm. there, there are tests that we can administer that will assess a child's attentional capacity. We can look to see if they can sustain attention. We can look to see how organized their thinking is. We can look at their ability to inhibit impulsive responses and those kinds of things. And all of those are hallmark characteristics of, of ADHD. However, you know, while the test will identify those symptoms, those symptoms are also very commonly present in kids with anxiety or in people with That's depression right. or in people with uh, bipolar disorder or some of these other things. And so while sure, those diagnoses are often, those symptoms are often associated with a particular diagnosis. It doesn't mean that that's the only diagnosis that they that they are associated with. And so, you know, one of the emerging problems that we're having is that we are taking symptoms and we are saying that symptoms are the same things as a diagnosis. And those are two right. very different things. A, a person, you know, we can create a situation where every everyone looks like they have ADHD. We can create we can put you in a scenario where you will have difficulty sitting still, where you will have difficulty focusing and attending to task, that you are unable to complete, you know, um, assignments or, or what we're expecting you to do. We can create those situations. It doesn't mean that everybody has ADHD. It just means that, you know, there's a mismatch. And so symptoms don't mean the same thing as a diagnosis. Those are two very different things. Right. And too many of us today are under this mistaken impression that if I have certain symptoms, then I must have this disorder. Right. I've had many people, I've had family members say, I think I have autism because I have this, or I do that. And I said, no, no, you do not have autism, okay? Or I'm depressed because I'm just, no, you, you don't have clinical depression, okay? So having the symptoms does not equate to having the diagnosis. Right. And we have, there are two problems with this notion. One is that if we just look at symptoms, we run the risk of missing the real problem. Right. Um, in other branches of medicine, we, we have <clears throat> the signal, we have pain and we have fever, right. okay? For example, uh, we have these symptoms, we call them pain and fever they certify that there's an underlying problem. Mm -hmm. But pain and fever can have many causes. Right. And some of those causes are trivial. Um, you might be, a baby might be teething, or you might have a cold. 
Um, so sometimes they're trivial, but sometimes a fever is a sign of a lethal problem. It could be meningitis. And so we need to, somebody needs to make that distinction. So dealing with symptoms alone isn't enough. Um, in psychiatry, in, in mental health, we have symptoms like distress and discomfort or fear or anxiety. They signify that there's an underlying problem, but like physical, but just like physical symptoms, these, this discomfort that we feel, these things that get us to start self-medicating or asking questions about our mental health, sometimes they're trivial, but sometimes they're serious. And if we, if we just treat symptoms, we might miss the real problem. Absolutely. That's, so that's the first problem. If we just if we just think about symptoms, identify symptoms, it's a there's a very good likelihood that we're going to miss the real underlying problem. Right. Yeah. We we wrote a we wrote an article one time about um, you know seven kids who who have school refusal. You know right. why would why would kids refuse to go to school? That's and right. you see that as a you see that as a symptom. You see that as a behavioral characteristic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, depending on your perspective or what you know about the child, you could say dozens of things could be the cause of a kid refusing to go to school. They, you know, it could be a learning disability. It could be depression. It could be, you know, household discord. It could be um, homelessness. Lots of things could lead to a child not wanting to go to school and having this kind of problem. So, yeah, you're right. Just looking at symptoms by themselves. We, we will likely miss the real cause and really what's going on. That's right. And we have that obligation as professionals. We have the obligation to get to the underlying cause. That's what, that's what we're being asked to do. That's what people are. That's why people are coming to professionals is they, they want, they, sh they should want to get to this underlying problem. That's our obligation, whether you're a, a physician or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, doesn't matter. You start with symptoms but your, your symptoms are simply saying that there's a problem. Let's figure out what that problem is. You know, you and I had the, we were advantaged because we got to work with people like Archie Silver, right. who said, you got to get the diagnosis right. Well, unfortunately, we're moving in just the opposite direction because the whole system has moved to symptom identification rather than let's figure out what's really going on here. Right. So, so one problem is, if we just look at symptoms, there's a very good likelihood that we're going to miss the real problem. Right. We see this in teenagers all the time. Um, they look up, they, they, they have some feeling and what teenager doesn't have some feeling. Um, and they, they look it up, they go to the internet, they look up the symptoms and say, oh yeah, I have these things. So right. I must have this. Yeah. I was just talking with and, a, with a teenager the other day and, um, she used a, a word, um, and, and I said, do you, do you know what that word means? And she didn't. And I said, well, so tell me, tell me what you mean when you say that you're experiencing that, that feeling. And she, she didn't know. And, and, and in fact, it's what happened. She read about it online and because, you know, there were a few symptoms that fit with, with what she was experiencing. And so then she looked at the rest of the symptoms and it included, you know, a, a number of, uh, of experiences and symptoms that and she just didn't know what they meant. And, and so as I informed her, I said, you know, so I, I'm worried that you're, we're moving in a direction where we're, you know, looking for diagnoses, trying to understand this in a, in a way that 
maybe leading us down the wrong path. And so let's 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 back up a little bit and look at really what's going on. So yeah, the the I, the whole thing yeah. with diagnosing and Dr. Google is is really concerning. Right. And, you know, you can have every symptom listed in the manual or listed on the website and still not have the diagnosis. Right. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter that you have the symptoms. There are other considerations that need to be baked into this decision. Symptoms don't equal diagnosis. So the first problem is if you just look at symptoms, it's a very good likelihood that you're going to miss the real problem. The second problem is when you... When we treat symptoms rather than causes, we run into two problems. One of those problems has to do with medication, and the other has to do with, and I'm going to use the term broadly, something called evidence-based therapies. And so we want to talk about how medications and these very specific evidence-based therapies might be leading us in some directions that we don't want to go. Absolutely. And, you know, again, we we think about this idea of a person walking into a, a psychiatrist's office or a, a medical provider's office and talking about their symptoms that they're experiencing. And, um, you know, there, there is a lot that is there, there is a lot of to point a lot, a lot of issues to point to the medical system in general uh, as um, contributing to this pretty handedly. But a person walks in and starts talking about their symptoms. And so the physician hears these symptoms and says, okay, for these symptoms, this is the medication that we give. And they start treating the symptoms. It's, it's sort of like um, an analogy from another branch of medicine would be, you know, if you have, um, you know, a person has an injury and they have an open fracture in their arm and there's a bone sticking out, but it's like, you know what, let's just put a bandage over it. Um, so that we can stop the bleeding, um, and then you should be just fine. Well, no, the underlying or, is that or, there's a bone sticking out of their arm, and that's that needs to be treated. But they're just <laughs> looking at okay, it's bleeding, so let's let's stop the bleeding. Um, yeah, or or let's give you let's let's treat the pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's okay? a We're going to give you a painkiller, but you still have a bone sticking out of your arm, right? You know? So what about that? You know, so right. if you just treat symptoms. We're going to continuously run into this problem. Absolutely, and and again, I think that the the, the medical system, and we could spend five podcasts talking about issues with that, because then that stems into the issues with the insurance system, um, the, the payment system that we have. But um, that's one big issue. The other issue, as you mentioned, is this whole this idea of evidence based therapies. And now, don't get us wrong, evidence based therapies are, are terrific. Um, and it is exactly right. what we should be doing. However, the only way that an evidence-based therapy will be effective is if you're doing the right therapy for the right condition, the right symptoms or the right um, diagnosis, you know. In the I, right person. Right. You know, you, you mentioned um, a fever earlier. Well, if a person has meningitis, probably doesn't really matter how much Advil you give them. It's not going to fix the problem. So. Um, even though Advil is an evidence-based therapy that is beneficial for reducing fevers, it's not going to be very effective in treating meningitis because that is really the cause of the fever. So when we, when we're doing evidence-based treatments, we have to make sure that we are treating the right thing, not just the symptoms, but right, right 
basis mm-hmm. or the right cause of the symptoms. That's right. So whether we're talking about medications or you know drug therapy or non-drug therapy, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Medications are very useful in treating symptoms. Right. Um, they do relieve anxiety and depression and inattention. They're very, very effective. But they but medications reduce symptoms so that we can begin the real work that this patient needs. If a patient can't get out of bed in the morning because she's so severely depressed, well then let's use a medication to get that person to the point where at least we can get her out of the bed and get her moving into the other therapies that she needs. It's the same thing with evidence-based therapies. People people will refer patients to us and they'll say, well, I want, or they'll call us and say, do you do cognitive behavioral therapy? Do you do, you know, can you help give my child some strategies to use? Well, yeah, we do cognitive behavioral therapy, but only when it's needed, only when it's appropriate for a particular patient. You, right. you Yeah, I can give you strategies to use, but but if I'm only giving you strategies to deal with your anxiety, I'm not really treating the underlying problem. I had a person year, several years ago, fear of flying. Can I get, can I deal with your fear? Well, by the time I finished, it wasn't just flying that she was fearful about. There were so many things that she wasn't leaving her house right. for any reason. She was almost homebound. It, it was yeah. because her, her anxiety was way beyond fear of flying. If I had just treated fear of flying, that wouldn't have treated the underlying problem. So that's what we're talking about here, whether it's drugs or non-drug therapies. Um, they they are very useful for very specific purposes, right. but it's not going to be treating the underlying problem. It may not treat the underlying problem. Right. Yeah. It, it, that's a and that's a great example. You know, despite what you might read online, you know, given despite all the benefits and the you know the usefulness of cognitive behavioral therapy, it is not indicated for everyone. It is not That's an right. ideal um, treatment for everyone and for every mm-hmm. condition. And so, you know, you you have to make sure again that you're you're treating the right thing. And and I think that, you know, as we're talking about, this is where we fall short many times because we want to immediately get to a diagnosis and immediately get to a point where we're providing uh, an evidence based treatment or a medication or something. And we're not taking the time to really figure out what's at the root, what's really going on that's causing these symptoms. We we did a podcast a, a, maybe even now a couple of years ago about, you know, the significant increase in medication use um, for mental health conditions. And we talked about our concern that, you know, people are seeking medication to treat symptoms that they're experiencing simply because they're unhappy with something with their life. You know, if you're if you're unhappy with your job and with your relationship and with some of those things, why are you going to get medication to sort of numb those feelings or to treat those those feelings and symptoms instead of making changes in your life that need to happen? Just because you're sad about things and, and you're feeling depressed, if you're if that all of that is caused by being severely unhappy with with some of these aspects, of your life, change those things in your life. You know, get therapy to change those things in your life. Don't get medication to to as though it's some biological thing. No, that's a that's an environmental um, triggering um, experience that's causing some of those symptoms. And and we need to again get down to the root of things to figure out what's happening. 
Yeah. And none of this is to say that depression and anxiety and attention, those are real problems. We we acknowledge that these, what we call mild mental illnesses, and we're talking about severe mental illness, debility. We're talking about mild mental illness here, that we acknowledge that they exist, but but we have to go beyond the identification and treatment of symptoms, right. whether it, we're using drugs or non-drug therapies, it will lead to the same problem. And that is that if we just focus on symptoms, identifying symptoms and treating symptoms, we run the risk of missing the underlying problem. And in most cases, they're life problems. They're not just, it's not just a simple mental health diagnosis. It's probably much larger than that. And we're going to have to deal with whatever symptoms you're having, but in the context of your life. And so in in subsequent in future podcasts, we want to talk about an alternative to this um, um, that has been, it's, it's in a book uh, by Stephen Hayes called, called A Liberated Mind, How to Pivot Toward What Matters. And that's our point today is we want to pivot to what matters and what matters is the underlying cause, not just the symptoms. So there is another piece of this that we want to talk about in subsequent podcasts. Absolutely. So with that, that will be it for today. Um, we hope that you all think about these uh, concerns and, and don't just jump to diagnoses uh, based upon symptoms, you know, really work with a mental health professional who is knowledgeable and experienced so that they can help you really get to the root of what's happening and, and find you the help that, that you really need. So, all right. So until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid. 